Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what's up, everybody? We are coming in hot uh, because we have a good crew here to chat all about beer. And uh, obviously, when you enter our intro, it says something about, you know, lovers of hunting, shooting, uh, public land, Second Amendment, good food, and none of that really matters if you don't have good beer at the end of the day. So uh, we are at Wisconsin Brewing Company here in Verona, Wisconsin, and uh, just outside of Madison and not too far at all from our HQ in Barneville, Wisconsin. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube on these cameras, you see in the background, hopefully there's some incredible looking equipment, big giant silver tanks, piping going every which way. And uh, the crew across the table from me uh, should probably introduce themselves here because we have uh, Kirby, Mike, and Ryan. And uh, we'll start with Kirby. Maybe you can give yourself a quick intro and uh, what you do here. All right. No. <laughs> okay. My name is Kirby Nelson. I've been working in the brewing industry 40 some years. My title here is Brewmaster. I am blessed with an incredible crew of folks that do a very good job of making me look good. We um, have a very, we're a relatively young operation. I mean, for me, six years is young. And we're in interesting times in our brewing industry. So we've been fighting the good fight for six years and are just making incredible progress. And, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm enjoying every minute of it. You know, I, a lot of people my age are thinking about retirement. The best years of my career are ahead of me. And I basically believe it's due to the, um, you know, the dedication of the folks we have here. Um, the fact that we're lucky enough to be in a state like Wisconsin it has such great brewing traditions and in a wonderful sure. community in the Madison, Wisconsin area with, with Vortex Gang and some of our homies. That's right. Not too far down the road. That's right. And uh, Mike, then you up. Yeah, my name's Mike McGuire, and I'm the director of operations. Uh, got involved in this brewery when it opened six years ago, a little before that because we were building it. But uh, it's been an awesome experience. We've, uh, we've done a lot of neat things in a short period of time. So we're just, uh, we're keeping moving. Now we got a canning line going in. and That's right. You know, I'd have to mention about Mike. You know, Mike had never worked in a brewery before. Um, what, we've been friends for 25 years or so, but you only see Mike a couple times a year because he was all over the world in charge of sometimes billion-dollar wind farm projects. Yeah. And he has been everywhere. And, and you like a master welder, I think I heard. Or oh, something he like does that. it all. Any any silly idea I come up with, the next day it's done better than I ever could have imagined it. This company <laughs> is rare because we wanted to have product out. We had purchased our brew house in November of 2012. And November 1st, 2013, we were going to have beer in the street. Guess what? We did. That never happens. It was on time. Wow. And literally, Mike has a lion's share of the credit for that happening. He's we all did it together. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Yep. Good guy there. And then Ryan, we have over here. Introduce yourself to. Ryan Sprague. I work for Wisconsin Distributors. So we are the wholesaler for uh, Wisconsin Brewing Company here in the Madison area, all the way, I think, to Watertown, Wisconsin, and then pretty much all the way to Prairie du Chien, north, south of there, Appleton, right. a lot. So, right. you know, those are probably like for the listeners not in Wisconsin. Those towns you mentioned are probably, probably the only towns they can actually pronounce in Wisconsin. That's <laughs> yes, probably yeah, yeah, yeah. So we cover a huge territory, and Wisconsin Brewing has been with us longer than I've actually been at Wisconsin yeah. Shooters. So you understand, gang out there in podcast land, we are a three tier industry. We have us as Wisconsin Brewing as producer, and then we have um, partners that are called wholesalers. Um, which is great. We deliver beer to these guys, and we get a check, and they go out there in the street and um, have the hard work of selling, delivering, and being a collection agency. There you go. And, um, and then we have the, the, the retailer, which um, when folks go out to, 
to buy a couple Sixers to have at the house. Um, that's what the retailer is. So it's three-tier, and it works. A lot of, you know, some people don't really understand, but selling direct is a lot of work. Totally. Right. And, you know, let's face it. In these four walls, I've got the easiest job. And I'm serious because I have control over things. Like I said, we've got a great team here. And if we don't like this, we can tweak and tweeze and this and that. But those guys have to go out in the street and deal with um, all the challenges of individual accounts, personalities, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very fluid, dynamic, changing market right now. I've never, it's unbelievable how fast beers and breweries are coming and going. I mean, when I started working in the industry um, in the late 70s, there was 61 buildings in the country making beer owned by 41 companies. And Wisconsin was a bright spot. We had seven breweries. Hmm. Okay, today, I would literally guess between eight and 10,000. That's what I was going to ask you yeah. guys about. You How guys. do you actually become a... You guys are... When I look at this, I think, like, pretty big brewery. Mm-hmm. And you did it about... Actually, you've done it about, actually, we're pretty small. Really? Yeah. How does so? What what is a big brewery then? Is that I guess is that it's like your, your Millers or something like yeah, that? Yeah, or it yeah. takes it up like a whole relative. city block or but something. But there's a brewery down the road that's two hundred forty thousand barrels a year. Yeah, right. New Glarus, oh, okay. a great brewery. And I would argue New Glarus is the most successful craft brewery in the country because they become very big. Their products are absolutely killer and diverse, and they did it all by staying in the state of Wisconsin. Right. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty very cool. an excellent strategy. Speaking of size, like you hear like the term like microbrew, right? Like. I guess what size are you like a microbrew? And then I guess I've seen some some microbrews that are quite a bit smaller than what you guys have going on here. And then of course then you've got like there's you know a, like a Miller Coors that's like and there's brew pubs like scale. around here with Great Dane Vintage some of those right and they're all typically a 15 barrel system. Okay, okay. you know so uh, 15 barrel systems are and they're producing beer for their facility. For their establishment. Yeah, right. Yeah. Please understand the majority of these thousands of breweries we now have, a lot of them could probably sit in that little kitchen area over there. A lot of them have used the term, for some reason, Americans always want to categorize this is big, this is nano, and if size matters, well, whatever. But, you know, the, most of the new ones are relatively small. Like Mike said, like so a lot of the brew pubs around here are 15 barrel. In this day and age, that's darn good sized. Hmm. Um, a lot of these guys are putting out one barrel systems and Again, to explain, we measure beer in this country in barrels, and a barrel is 31 U.S. gallons or 330.67 of these. Oh, and um, so, you know, you got Anheuser-Busch, which is at one time had 52% of the U.S. beer industry when beer was really on top of the world in the United States in the 90s, and they were doing 50 million barrels. Oh. Yeah. And I started in large breweries, and I started at Capital Middleton. We had a 35-barrel brew house, which is very large by today's brewery standards. I walked in and I said, geez, we got toys. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you go to city right now, there's a thousand barrel brew house. A lot of people walk in here and just go, wow, that's 80 barrels. I mean, for a startup um, craft brewery, microbrewery, however you want to categorize this, we did start quite large. But again, it's all relative. And the industry right now in this country, I want to touch when we get have, have all these breweries that is so challenging. Yeah. We have created a generation of drinkers that has an attention span and length of there, I probably can't say it on a podcast, all right? <laughs> and so you've got, like, things like Untapped, or there's a growing group of people who are going to drink two ounces of beer and never want it again. Mm-hmm. I've had 8,000 beers. Yeah, my ass, you've had 8,000 beers. You had two ounces, decided you'd, you know, grace the world with your opinion on it and moving on. On Instagram. So <laughs> if you look, I mean, we basically, you go into a lot of large, you know, places that have multiple tap lines or about 1,000 feet of beer cooler, and you almost are paralyzed by choice. 
Yes, you know, right. And it's, so it's really some places almost make a point of it. Like that is their shtick, as you can walk in and there's just oh yeah, umpteen bazillion choices. Yeah, I mean a lot of um, the draft accounts are rotators these days, and they'll buy six barrels, which are you know the industry that had been based in draft beer in terms of half barrels, which is you know half of half of the full size barrel. We now have little six barrels, so you can you can get more um, lines in a certain footprint. And a lot of the rotating places, your beer can be the greatest beer in the planet, so to speak, and sell like that, or the worst swill ever put out. They don't care. They're going to sell one and move on to the next one. It's just because one of the most common things you hear in the industry is what's new, what's new, what's new, what's new. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, for a brewer, that's fun. You know what I mean? But it also, as a business model, it's questionable. Hmm. Because you really can't satisfy that beast. It's like, you're, you know, what's a new shiny object? It's like, in, like a narcotic, you know. Yeah. Something new, something yeah. new, something new. And realistically, we can't do 80 barrels of a different beer every week because you may never sell it. Yeah. People might like it right away, but... And doesn't that make your operation in the back a total nightmare where you, do you have to, like, I don't know what I'm talking about, do you have to, like, clean out a tank after you've done one type of beer Absolutely. and then, you know, and then start a new one so you're not contaminating right. it with, I mean... You know, that's, it's ironic, you know, it's, you're bringing up an interesting point that I want to touch on because... You know, beer back in the days of Joe's six-pack was probably considered the least glamorous and most, you know, inexpensive of all alcoholic beverages. Ironically, it's the most sensitive. Hmm. Um, Beer Hmm. is a very fragile liquid, especially in the light lager type form. It's very, very susceptible to um, forces such as oxidation, microbiological infection, and whatever. One of the reasons beer became very popular in the Middle Ages, and the history of beer, you guys, by the way, we've gone for hours. It's absolutely fascinating. The Middle is, Ages you're talking about now, like what What would that be? Well, the oldest known recipe for foodstuff ever found is 7,000-year-old-plus from ancient uh, Babylon area, I believe, for oh. beer. Okay. You know, basically, beer is considered, to get off on a tangent, the, the mother of civilization. You know, originally humankind, we were very nomadic. We wandered around a lot. And in an area today that's known as the Fertile Crescent, it's um, Eastern Mediterranean, we discovered wild barley. And we finally decided, you know, the hell with this wandering around and let's kill that and let's and eat it and let's pick that off the ground, see if we like it. Let's learn to cultivate this stuff and turn it into bread. And we did. And then, in what authorities would have to agree, is the happiest accident ever. <laughs> it is theorized that perhaps some of these little loaves of bread we're in a clay pot or something, and some water was in it, and sat around for a few days. And some true genius, instead of going woo and dumping it out, picked it up, took a sip, boom, life got better. Yeah, you know what I mean. Can you imagine being that guy? Oh, look at this old wet pot of old bread. Why dare don't you I take to drink a sip? it? Yeah, well, that's probably how it happened. <laughs> so, kids, when your friends tell you they dare you to drink something, maybe you should because you might uh, exactly. get rich off a new invention. Uh, no, kids, Vortex don't do is that. not liable for anything you... that you drink. Uh, or ingest, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, but then again, understand, one of the reasons beer became popular, it's a very safe liquid to drink. There are no dangerous microorganisms that can live in the environment of beer. Because of the alcohol The, the pH. The pH oh. is too low, and pathogens that can harm you in this particular, in the beer environment, don't exist. Hmm. And so, I mean, the reasons the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, our victuals, especially beer, hath been spent. And it was basically the guys, and you know, they were drink, sipping on beer to quench your thirst as they came over here. And the guys in charge of the chips were going, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" The chips, the chips. So um, we're running low. See that rock? Get out! And it was <laughs> they're going, "Eh, eh, eh!" Here they're in this pristine new world, but they didn't trust the water. So they had to negotiate leaving enough beer on hand so they could figure out make you to make. And I believe it was an acorn beer, some type of beer with what was um, available in the North American environment. So they were essentially using beer as like a water purification system. That's actually a good way to put it. You know, it's a little bit different than that, but um, 
it wasn't necessarily purifying the or wait. It well, put it, it this was, way. It was, it, it was purified because basically there are plenty of bacteria that can live in beer can make it taste absolutely awful, but they can't harm you. Oh. And so if you see this environment out here, these guys and they're again, Eric and James and Kyle and the cellar gang are incredible. All those tanks out there, we are trying to achieve commercial sterility. Mm-hmm. We all have one microorganism, keyword micro, they're small, and that's a particular yeast we've chose to ferment this liquid. You know, we don't make beer, by the way, in the brew house. We make a fermentable liquid called wort. The microorganisms work on this wort. They thrive in it, and the byproduct of them having a party in it is beer. And, um, yeah, we don't, ba- we don't make beer. We grow yeast, okay? All right. But it's very, again, we get these milder lagers, which I love. You have to have control. And it's dedication, and it really is doing the same boring thing time in and time out. You know, a lot of people are getting a beer, oh, what a cool, wonderful thing. Yeah, the romance. Getting here and, and spend most of your time dragging hoses and cleaning tanks and soaking fittings, and you realize that beer is a lot of work. Yeah. But it the rewards like are great. All right. And you guys, kind of speaking of, you know, oxidation processes and all these things about beer and, and keeping it good and whatnot, and like you mentioned earlier, you alluded to it. It's a big day here for you guys because this canning line behind you is going to be opening up. And, you know, a lot of people, we were just discussing this earlier as we were kind of walking around and looking at it. A lot of people think beer is best out of a bottle, but I've heard maybe that it's best out of a can or maybe what? Or maybe it's there? best draft. <laughs> or maybe it's best draft. Yeah. All well, right. So many choices. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's an image thing. Yeah. Because let's face it. The the can is how the majority of beer has been drank since, um, oh, the 60s, all right? And beer in cans had its roots in Prohibition. You know, during Prohibition, everyone, you couldn't um, take beer home to drink. Mm -hmm. I mean, excuse me, you couldn't go out to the tavern, so you had to go, you know, have to sneak beer home to drink. And that's when we really got in the habit of taking beers home as opposed to going out to the saloon or tavern. And post-Prohibition, well, who wants to carry around those big quart picnic bottles? Um... A brewery called Kruger in 34 did the first beer can. And they became very popular in World War II because we had all these guys of prime beer drinking age over fighting for us overseas. we got to take care of these guys. Let's get them some beer. And the can is a more convenient and lighter package. It doesn't beer. shatter if it right. falls and breaks. So post-World War II, a lot of folks got into the habit as they were overseas drinking beer out of cans. And when they came home, yeah, we're cool with that. But you always get, well, the cans and metal and they're cheap and blah, blah, blah. All right, let me tell you something. Cans are a wonderful package. It's not on the metal. There are very inert, very protective linings in cans to protect the liquid. Um, Beer is very susceptible to um, a phenomenon called becoming skunky. There are compounds post-fermentation in beer that a certain wavelength of light will get into the liquid and cause a reaction. It'll flip off a certain molecule off a hop, well, off a larger hop molecule, react with hydrogen sulfide. That's a natural byproduct of fermentation. And you got something that basically reminds you of when you punt a skunk in the woods, all right? And here's an interesting thing. You know, you see why this is in brown, these are brown glass? Right. Yeah, yeah. Brown bottles protect beer. They, they, they don't allow that wavelength of light. They What's keep the deal it with some of them are green sometimes, too? Is and that green is, let's put thing? it this way, green will not. Green, green, and, green and clear, you'll be able to get skunk in a heartbeat. Huh. I once, many years ago, was giving a tour, and one of the guys on tour said, yeah, my brother was just over at a big brewery, which will go unmentioned overseas, and asked, how come your beer is always skunky? And the tour guide haughtily report, um, replied, 
All good beer is skunky, sir. Yeah, right. It was due to the green glass. And this reaction, by the way, if you went and got our, oh, let's say vacation lager and put it in a glass and stuck it in that sun, sunny windowsill for about two, three minutes, you would notice it. It happens that quick. Oh, minutes. Right. So that literally, quick. yes. So the can really protects that. Basically, one of the parameters we're really concerned with um, when we create beer it's, um, is a pickup of oxygen. It will um, cause oxidation in a beer as it can make beer taste very stale, bready, cardboardy, what have you. Cans, historically, has been much easier to keep low dissolved oxygen because you're going to pick up some air during the packaging process. Granted, um, the technology has increased like you wouldn't believe since I started in the industry where it's not as much as a problem as it is anymore because there are so many new... Um, pieces of equipment and techniques to eliminate oxygen from the environment the beer is being packaged in. But cans are very, very good at keeping low DOs in the can, provided a, you have an operator like Phil who's on top of it. And right. also, if you want to talk about basically going green, cans make more sense because they're so much lighter. Right. You know, freight, freight is based on weight. And uh. we can probably ship 40% more cans in a truckload than we can glass and you know, use that much fuel per um per case, so to speak, because we can ship more cans at a time. I feel like they're just way more portable as well. Like if you're going, yeah. if you're traveling or doing something, they compress, right, afterwards. Like if you're, if you're trying to, you know, space for, you know, waste and things like that, right. they and just it, seem like a more they, they don't shatter. practical I mean, system. Yeah. They have a lot going for them. And, um, you know, when the craft industry first started, again, it was not cans. It was, it, again, all based on this Joe six-pack cheap beer image. Right. And... Yeah. You feel a little bit fancier when you drink out of a bottle. You do, right. but like you said, it, but it's you know because you've been psychologically told you know that mm -hmm. oh it's better with these gorgeous labels and foil top and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I get it. But you know, let's let's basically let's go back and visit Earth. Um, in reality, uh, <laughs> a can's a better package. Yeah, I truly believe it. Um, and plus, you wouldn't believe how noisy a bottle shop is, and glass breaking all over the floor, and having to stick a crown in a bottle. It's a it's a totally different thing. Oh, yeah. I'm very pleased. We're getting into cans. Yeah. Well, and you go, I mean, even just from, like, you go in the outdoors, and every now and again, it's nice to enjoy a cold one, but maybe you get to your favorite spot, and I've been there before where there's a broken bottle, you know? Yeah. And like, well, I'm not going well, barefoot yeah, you, today. You or pick through the grass and get every single piece. Right. Mike, this had to have been a huge operation to be implementing, right? What's this for director of operations? What's it been like putting in the, can, uh, the canning process? It's actually been a lot of fun, yeah. but it's been a little stressful from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we have a, we've had a lot of fun, and it's been a good crew of people working on it, and we had all the right people in the right places, and it's you know it's just been an awesome experience. So what it, it, today is a big day. It just uh, for we're, sure we're excited about getting it fired up. We've been working pretty hard for the last two months. How well, Mike, I, I've got I've stayed a hell out of his way. Mike is the kind of guy who will be in here between 3 and 4 in the morning and stay till 7 o'clock at night. And he's been doing it seven days a week, and he's been doing it for months. <laughs> but I am younger than Mike. I can't keep up with him. I don't try. You know what I mean? Again, Mike comes in here, and he just knows how to get it done. And I love watching him work with um, folks like Noah because he's not demanding. He works with them. He does everything he can do to give the contractors and the folks in here you know, what they need to get it done. You might want to ask Noah that question. <laughs> <laughs> Is he pretty good to work with, Noah? No. <laughs> we, <laughs> does his job depend on it, he asked us. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe uh, hash this out after the podcast. It, but It does seem like a true team here, it though, does. because it there's does. so much going on here, so much work, but nobody wants to take the credit for it. Right. 
how many cans are you going to be doing? Somebody was mentioning like cans per minute is a thing apparently. Yeah, this this right. particular canning line will do fifteen thousand cans an hour at full speed. An hour at full speed. Fifteen thousand. Yeah. Okay, so, so two hundred and fifty cans a minute. Your question, Mark. Well, who's on the end catching all those cans? Right. <laughs> where are they? Wire. Where are they going after they're made? You know. Essentially, and, and eventually, here next week, our packing system is showing up. Okay. And that'll go in, and then what'll happen, the cans will come off the line, they'll come through the pack conveyor, and then they'll all be put in packages and loaded on pallets. You like robots. So there's, so, some, there's yeah. not some dude at the end that's completely overwhelmed and eventually just covered in Well, they in cans. may be overwhelmed at first, but they'll get used to it. You know, right. everybody will get used to it. Today, yeah. we're going to run about 8,000 cans for the first time. Oh, that's all. Oh, okay. No, child, that's child's play. play. You guys, just you haven't <laughs> seen anything cool, and granted, I'm, a, I'm not a beer geek, I'm a brewery geek. I love everything in the industry and when you see a, a can or bottle filler spin along at a thousand to twelve hundred units per minute it's incredible oh it, it really it's, it's amazing technology and it's, i can just sit I just sit for hours and watch it it's yeah. just fascinating and again they've had to figure out this technology okay we've got a basically there's air in that bottle we've got to get that air out and we've got to, you know, get it get it filled. And a lot of places we we can pasteurize or not. And what pasteurization does is it goes through a big energy sucking tunnel that sprays um, hot water over it, you get it up to a certain temperature that kills the microbes present, and then cool it down and it stays stable. You know, it okay. won't spoil. But we also this filler is very, you know, meant to fill very cleanly. We also will bypass that with certain beers that we don't want to heat up. Yeah. So, so with that, like so the th these microbes and things like that, you know, we're talking about like it essentially being very stable earlier, and those things can definitely affect the flavor. Mm -hmm. But if something got in there, like it wouldn't necessarily hurt you at the same time. It would just affect the flavor of the no, beer. No, and, and it's a matter of degree. You've got to get to a certain level before they get to the size or they're being fruitful and multiplying, and the flavors that they throw off can make it very tart or nasty or buttery or rancid and what have you. Again, I was bought up, you know, with... Um, I learned my craft from um, guys who spent their careers as East Coast brewers shutting breweries down. I was working in a small brewery in Central Florida that Heilman owned. And it was a different time, and these guys were great. But they'd shut down Rheingold, shut down Ortlieb, shut down Schaefer, shut, you know, and on and on and on. It was sad. But I gained so much respect for these types of guys and learning about how to make beer for them. And these were mild American standard lagers. Um, which Bud Miller, a great representative. Hell, most of the beer in the world drank today as variations of this type of beer. Okay. And you know, I learned a lot from those guys and a real appreciation for it and a real appreciation for how you've got to learn to handle this product to keep it good and so it's representative. And I get in the craft, and we were just dealing with this one yeast and keep everything super clean. You get in some of the beers and crafts, we've got a tank right now that um, we filled with a, what would be a wild yeast, never wanted in um, most in large brewery beers called Brettanomyces, which can give it like horse sweat blanket type flavors. We, um, Funk Factory in it town. It tastes like a horse sweat blanket. Yeah, and I like it. Okay. I don't know. How do you, uh, what I'm wondering how do more you, is uh, when was find... the last time you tasted a yes. horse sweat blanket? Well, I'll, he I'll has show you a the bunch video. of them at home. His, his wife picks them up. Just when, the blankets when she or the goes horses out west, too. She gets them. Oh, yeah. okay. All I right. think we've got an entirely different right? broadcast on our hands here. <laughs> oh my god! Um, but then we do um, a beer for a, a place in town called Funk Factory, um, which makes variations of spontaneously fermented Belgian wheat ales. Which means we do a really complex brew that we have an automated brew house, but this is a total hand job. And Mike's got to take some pipes apart and rearrange hoses for me. And I just geek out for 13 hours trying to make this stuff. But at the end, instead of putting it in a pristine, clean tank and one little cell of yeast, we pump it outside into a 1,000-gallon stainless steel pan. 
And you can only make these things in the colder months because in the warmer months, there are too many microbes present that will make for unpleasant tasting beer. Mm-hmm. And it just sits out there overnight and steams away and whatever's present falls in it. And you stick it in wood and forget about it for a year. You're not controlling anything. And these beers... It's called a cool shoe. Yeah. And these beers can just be marvelous. So it doesn't Do matter bugs, anything. I see it can. Or, okay. And some can absolutely are terrible. Dan Carey makes some great... <laughs> has um, his initial brewery. He's now... It's basically all for making what's called sour beers. You've probably heard that term. Oh, yeah. Year, and that's sure. What these yeah, are. yeah. And as I was starting to, you know... Get interested in these. I remember asking Dan, because I'm again, I'm a control freak when you're making lagers and a lot of our ales here. Right. I said, How do you control this stuff? And he looks at me and he starts laughing. He goes, You don't. You is just it just, can't. Is it just completely unpredictable? Like right. until and you taste it, is, it it's, you it's have no idea. It's, it's true traditional brewing. Understand, that's how all beer, we didn't know what yeast was till the 1800s. You know? Well. The German purity law, which um, basically was the first food protection law in Germany, I mean, it says beer can only be made with water, malted barley, and hops. Yeah. And now they added yeast because when they did it, they didn't know what yeast was. They just knew it was this gunk that, uh, that <laughs> appeared in the beer. And literally, all beer prior to the 1800s was ales. The main difference between, um, we, under the heading of beer, we make ales and lagers. And the main differentiation is the type of yeast used. Okay. And to simplify it, ales are fermented at warmer temperatures. And again, we're making this sugar, nutrient sugar brew for the yeast in the brew house. Is it's that the stuff beer. you call wort? Wort, Correct. And the yeast gets in there and starts doing what yeast has and starts chewing up all the sugars, and it eats up the oxygen real quick. So it becomes what's called anaerobic, you know, lack of oxygen environment. And so when the yeast is eating these sugars, the main byproducts are heat, carbon dioxide, and everyone's good friend, ethyl alcohol. All right? Mm. That's where the alcohol comes from. Ale yeast do this at warmer temperatures and during fermentation float to the top. All brewing was home brewing until the Industrial Revolution, all right? And basically, you'd have this fermenting slop and it was in basically women did most of the brewing and they didn't know what the yeast was but they realized just like sourdough bread we got a starter here if you take a little of this and whap it in the next batch things happen quicker and so that's how they started learning to pitch yeast an entire podcast could be um to be voted a number of things that i like to babble about but the rise of lager yeast is something entirely cool it's almost like science fiction how it happened and ironically um the UW, Dr. Chris Heitinger and some of his um, colleagues discovered the mother of um, what became lager yeast in Patagonia within the last 10 years. Hmm. And it's a fascinating story. And we... Like, they think that that is the... They, it's been genetically... You guys, just to... The yeast was just discovered, but now they found it. And it's pretty common in the southern hemisphere and north hemisphere. Back, Very dog-friendly here. Again, yes. Get... <laughs> get Please understand, like I said earlier, all beer is spontaneously fermented. Yeah. You take a brew house, all right? Back then, you'd have a lot of wood, steam, a lot of malt dust, heat, perfect environment for microorganisms such as yeast to thrive in. And the beer would be put in these, you know, spontaneously fermented. What was present in the air would fall in. Somehow, and this is a true story, an explorer got some of this yeast from this um, Ubanus, it's called, on his clothing in a beach forest somewhere in the southern hemisphere, Listen now, I'm not making this up. Okay. Came back um, and was hanging out with a brewer friend at some brewery. Some of this yeast escaped off of his clothes. It got into the environment and mutated, hybridized with some of the ale, some of the yeast that was normally in the brewery. Now, the next weird thing that happened was in the 1400s, the mayor of Munich got all the brewers together and said, I'm tired of you guys making lousy beer. 
you're going to stop. I want you all to take a pledge and make good beer because beer is very erratic. Well, what they learned was when they made beer in the winter months, it was fine when they produced the wort. In the summer months, it wasn't. And again, it gets back to like when I was talking about that lambic. During the warmer months, there were too many microfauna that got in the wort and produced unpleasant flavors. Mm-hmm. So in Germany, it became illegal to brew from a St. Something's Day in um, late April to another St.'s Day in late September. So what they, were they going to stop drinking beer in the summer if they're good Germans? That ain't happening. No. So what would they do? In um, March, come to mid-April, they brew heavy-duty batches of beer and put them in wooden casks and get them up in the Alps in caves that they packed with ice. And this beer would slowly ferment, and they would draw these casks out of these caves during the summer to, to have a couple, two, three. And the origins of the beer garden were when some of the guys who owned these caves planted chestnut trees out by them, and the trees got big enough, they put tables and chairs to serve the beers underneath them. That's where beer gardens came from. Anyways, lo and behold, this mutated yeast, um, ale yeast likes warmer temperatures. We ferment our lagers about 20, 25 degrees colder. This new mutant yeast liked the colder temperatures. It was this, so they'd wheel this fermenting beer into these caves that were packed with ice. It was colder. Guess what it did? It was a more favorable environment for this new hybrid. They took over the ale yeast, and they started making this cleaner, more pleasant-tasting beer. And what's the stuff on the bottom of the cask? Because ale yeast, excuse me, lager yeast settles to the bottom. Huh. So that's all, I mean, that's why the, the history of everything on this planet is fascinating. But for me, it's beer. And stories like that where you learn how things came from. And this literally, lagers just appeared in the 1830s. And okay. now almost all the beer in the world drank is, you know, the lager style beer. Ryan, this is all stuff you use in your sales pitches, right? Everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we usually go through, I usually every day do that story three or four times. So when a retailer is trying to just figure out what sells best, you go, well, let me tell you about yeah. the history yeah. of the sales and, and, and beer oh, yeah. gardens. How yeah. it works yeah. is after sure. 10 Let's minutes, they just second. say, fine, fine, <laughs> just get it and get out of here. Works like a charm. And then their next question is, what's new? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Holy smokes. And is that why Oktoberfest is a thing in Germany? Is that because it got cold again? Beautiful. Then, another, you know, good, another good I story. I love these stories. I would actually, you know, did you, it's great. almost like we'd, we'd rehearse this. It almost is, but I promise we didn't. when we do uh, Oktoberfest, the style is called Merzen. All right? Okay. March. Yeah, and that means March in Germany. This was beer that was yeah. brewed in March and stuck into the caves. Oh, okay. Oh, and, and, now was... it, and so it became the Merzen beer. And literally, that was a beer they drank, and whatever was left come late September... Um, they could start brewing again, so they had all this beer available for a big party. And that is one of the origins of Oktoberfest. So the origins of Oktoberfest are, that's another cool story, and beer wasn't even part of the first ones. That oh, was really? blasphemous, yeah. But that's, a, that's a, again, <laughs> for another podcast. Um, but <laughs> Jim's just a big lederhosen guy. But literally, so nice. you know, so, yeah. and the Oktoberfest style as we make it today, though, um, evolved in the mid-1800s as a lager, and it was from a brewery called Spaten. And spotten in German means spade, means shovel. So if you ever, anyone who's listening, next time you're at a, a store that sells a lot of good beers, look for a bottle of spotten, and you'll see the shovel head. And next to the shovel head, you'll see the initials G and S. Okay. And that's Gabriel Settlemeyer. And Gabriel was the father of modern-day brewing. He was the brewer at um, Spaten in Munich in the mid-1800s. And he, among the many things he did, one of the things he did was develop what has become the official Oktoberfest style. And it, quite frankly, is one of the most popular and beloved styles on the planet done right. I absolutely adore it. Okay. Ours is called Patron Saint because that means guardian of the order. With all these new funky beers, you always know you got something like Oktoberfest to represent what beer should truly be. Huh. And that's a great example of the style. So, oh, okay. So Oktoberfest is almost like, it's almost like one of the most ideal forms of beer or something. Yeah, yeah. but the biggest irony is Mike will um, attest to when you go to um, 
to the beer garden, excuse me, yeah, the big beer tents during Oktoberfest in Munich, which just ended a couple weeks ago, you don't get real Oktoberfest beer. You get their fest beer. Hell, it's golden colored. I was, oh, I've been to October Germany once. I drank 107 beers in one week, took notes on all of them, <laughs> and got to write the trip off. I did develop a beer from that trip, so it was legit. Okay, it's, it's good to the know that you could got a little so dim after a while. Oh, yeah, they're all stained. <laughs> Scribble. But anyways, I could not believe it because when we got there, I go, we're going to the spot in tent because that's the original Oktoberfest, and we're going to see this is like, you know, 9, 30, 10 in the morning. I couldn't believe it when golden colored beers came out. I mean, it really was a what kind of moment. Yeah. But the beer is still very good, and in a half hour, you're on your second liter with a Schweinhocks in the size of a beach ball in your hand. <laughs> second liter. And three <laughs> in the afternoon. Well, that's what I'm So when you're talking about this, you know, hundred and some beers, were these liters? Well, you think I'm going to drink shots? <laughs> I'm professional, on, mister. I'm, yeah, this guy is a, this is a brew master. I'm sorry. Now Again, another you. professional. I'm embarrassed. Right, right. He's a professional. Right. Mike, you were talking about you've been over to Germany, and you're going to be going over again because you go I, go. I go to Germany a couple times a year at least. And you go, it sounded like to hunt, but then also for beer-related? Well, actually go to Beskesgaden. That's where we hang out a lot. Okay. Um, we'll fly into Munich, and then we take a train down to Beskesgaden, or... You can get on the SA train and take it as far as it goes and go to Ondek Monastery Brewery, which wow. is one of the most phenomenal breweries in the world. Everyone you, go to Ondek and oh drink the Bach, double Bach. They make a Doppelbach. And my limit is three Mosses, which is big. He's a lightweight. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. How and, old? and Doppelbach, stand, that's German for? Another what story. It, what does that even mean? All right. But no, real ger- quick, I want to touch upon Mike over there has gotten to be friends with um, a brewmaster. Klaus, of the Hofbrauhaus Berchtesgaten, and this guy is awesome, and the help he gives us. Mike went over to do the factory acceptance test on the filler here at Krohn's. Klaus, on his own dime, took off his from work and came and visited Mike in Munich and helped him with this, you know, mm-hmm. being a German and understanding how, you know, being the translator. I mean, that's the class of people. Germany is like the center of beer it almost seems like it, it's a it yeah it's very so good it, it's a it's one of the original beer established yeah places in the world well, like you say you can almost go good. back to like mesopotamia in a way or something but then it seems like it Germany just well just basically has, like, you know um a super rich southern tradition. europe where it stayed warmer the grape northern europe um barley mm. you know what i mean and okay beer. and now the question about double back i don't know how much time you've got here how much time you got <laughs> buddy? what are we at it doesn't matter We're when good. the stories yeah. are so good. But <laughs> Doppelbach, if you go to, like, Mike mentioned Andex, which is literally one of the coolest places on the planet, there's this beautiful monastery on a hill with a rock and beer garden attached to it, but it's a cloister monastery, which means that the folks that have decided to devote their life, you know, to the to religion, um, Catholic in this case, I believe, um, they enter these four walls, and the cloister means they don't leave them. Mm-hmm. They stay there the rest of their lives. But besides meditation, et cetera, what they do. Some of them also make cheeses, and some of them are brewers. And there was um, the monks of the, of the Brauerei St. Paulins outside of Munich. Um, being, you know, good Catholics, during Lent, they do not eat. Three-week yeah. period. But they could drink. <laughs> so what they decided to do was make liquid <laughs> bread. And so they made this strong lager beer. And it when you get up to a certain gravity, again, we won't get into that, but it goes from Bach then to Doppelbach. Not twice as strong, but a beer that's going to have the potential to have at least 7.5 ABV. Okay. And when most lagers back then in the, you know, are 4 to 4 to 5, you know, it's stronger. Mm-hmm. 
and they would live on this. So they just sleep through Lent. That was the idea, right? Well, basically, you talk about having visions. You're drinking eight percent beer for nothing else for three weeks with yeah. no food, right? <laughs> um, but it, so that became the double back, and actually, the ironically, they got in trouble with the powers that be in town because apparently, in this brewery, there was a window where they could serve serve beer to people on the street. And they started serving people as double bop, didn't know what it was, and they were getting all out of control. But <laughs> the whole town. <laughs> but this um they gave this beer a wonderful name, Salvatore, which means savior. Hmm. And huh. the assignment to anyone watching this today is go out and find Salvatore. You can get it. It's the original double box. Oh, you see you can get it? Yeah, and it's wonderful. Oh wow. And what else is interesting, you see that last name, that Salvatore A T O R ending? It became very popular in Munich, and of course, when something becomes popular. Everyone else is going to try to make their version of it. Right. So all German, you know, a lot of Munich area breweries started making this double bock, but to let folks know that what they're up against, it has an A-T-O-R ending. So like Salvatore, Optimator. Those, you see that A-T-O-R ending in a German beer, you know you've got, a, you've got some serious business ahead. It's got, you're going to take it to the next level. Correct. Whew, I like that. And they're Man, wonderful. I feel like at this point, too, we've gotten to the, to the, the place where I probably should have asked this a while ago, but... There seems to be so many different flavors and kinds of beer. But when I think of the basic ingredients, there doesn't seem to be that many. But a lot of the things you've mentioned almost seems to be like the way that you make it can change what kind of beer it is, the types of yeast that you use. It reminds me of optics, too, because some people just think of when they look at a rifle scope or a binocular, they're like, oh, it's got glass in it. You know, it's got like... This one has good glass, this one has better glass, and this one has, like, the best glass. But yeah. it's like, well, actually, each lens has its own chemical makeup, and it has its own coating, and it has its own way it's ground and everything like that. So I can almost see a parallel to then beer where if somebody probably just says yeast, you would say to them, well, what kind? Exactly. You know, or, I could call the computer right now and go to one of the yeast houses, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of um, strains of yeast. I mean, basically, you've got ale yeast and lager yeast, but... Under this heading, there are so many substrains and this and that, and mm-hmm. raw materials. I mean, you know, beer making's been around forever, and what became popular was the use of malted barley. In fact, the reason of the Rhein High School vote is the Germans wanted to make sure there was some wheat left for bread, <laughs> so all the wheat wouldn't be going into beer. But what craft brewing does today is, if it exists and it might be soluble, it has ended up in a beer. Now. I don't necessarily think squid ink is a good ingredient in a beer, okay? Okay. And a but lot has of people it been are done. Yes. Oh, it, you wouldn't believe what's been done. And a lot of it, I think, is done. I mean, a lot of people, uh, it's all about innovation. And I agree. Right. You know, that's how things move forward in any endeavor. But a lot of the stuff I see today, it's, um, you know, there's a great saying by the philosopher Frank Zappa without deviation from the norm, progress is impossible. Yeah. And there's innovation, but in so much beer today, you guys, it's not innovation. It's Cans desperation. Hands coming in hot. Hands coming in? Cans. Look at that. Oh, I got, man. Sorry, I got distracted. So that Without that, deviation, there is no innovation. Without deviation from the um, norm, progress doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I agree. But in beer this today and age, I, I don't see, what I see is desperation. Yeah. I see Just kind of so take a regular stuff. beer, throw something weird in. Yeah, and, and it gets it. more about tasting than drinking. Right. Our definition of beer here is a great beer is an adjunct to the enjoyment of life. I mean, life's a wonderful thing, all right? Look, at we're out here, we're watching the geese hit the pond. We're all excited about a new piece of equipment going. We're having a great time in this podcast. You guys are pretty decent. Mike's a little repulsive, but we deal with him. <laughs> um, but, like, when you're hanging out with your friends or the back guy watching TV, I love having a beer. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to sit there and analyze it. I just want to take in the whole situation or the conversation I'm having with my friends. Beer should be an adjunct to the enjoyment of life. Mm. It should just be one of those mm. things 
that for a lot of people just makes that special moment a little more special, a little more comforting, relaxing. And everybody has a different palate. And there's so many yeah. varieties of beers now yeah. that that palate has expanded tremendously. Well, and like how did when you guys are developing a beer, that was one thing I was wondering too, because you know, when we develop an optic, you make the optic good and everybody can see that it's good. But when you make a beer, somebody over yonder who likes, you know, dark coffee stouts, whatever, versus somebody over here who likes sour beers, you know, and then you make a beer and it's like, well, tell us if it's a good beer. One person might say no, but it actually might be a good beer to all the people who like that kind of beer. How do you figure that out? Like yeah, if you've made a good beer. Basically, yeah, that's, um, I guess it depends what you're trying to do. Yeah. And you're right. There is no right or wrong answer to that. So, you know, there are classic styles, and when I'm a stickler, and all of us here are, and most of us really love traditional styles, and when a style evolved, like let's say a, a Pilsner, it's got to have, should be in this color range, and this amount of hop bitter, and this ABV, and malty, and it shouldn't be dark, and blah, blah, blah. We're going to try to do our version of that beer, but it's got to fit these certain parameters. It's not true to style. But there are other things where it doesn't matter. Hmm. You can do whatever you want, and one isn't more legitimate than the other. Right. And again, your, your point is very well taken. It depends what people like. Now, then you got these morons like Hayes Bros, which, you know, all of a sudden you want these really cloudy beers. And um, <laughs> we're good, you know, a good friend of ours who, has a, who makes great beers and very, very good hazy beers will have customers come to his place. And instead of drinking the beer and enjoying it, if they put their fingers behind the glass and see it, they're complaining. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, it's not cloudy enough. You don't, you don't want to see I your fingers say, through the go beer. go pound sand, you know, but... That again, there, there's some swamp water fine. out back that you might enjoy. Or? You know what? You want to try it? We got something called Swamp Thang in the tank. You swamp try. Thang? Yeah, it's a yeah. collaboration um, that we did. You know, we basically, um, Wisconsin Brewing Company and Lake Louis are, are not one. Yes, that's Lake right. Lake Louis mm-hmm. Tom Porter has been a very good friend of ours forever. And um, we decided to join forces, and it's, we're having a gas. Um, there's a wonderful little brewery in Madison called the Working Draft Brewing Company. And the brewmaster there is um, a gentleman named Clint Lohman. And Clint started, well, he worked with us for a year and a half or so before he um, went, went off on his own. Yeah, and we did um, a collaboration with um, basically the Lake Louis mentality and Clint. So we're doing this big, big IPA called Swamp Thing. And it's actually pretty good. If you guys <laughs> can try some if you want. You know, in a nod, i got to tell this story. Mike always talks about Berk Disquette and, and drinking these great Dunkel beers, dark beer. Yeah. And, and Klaus has basically told Mike exactly how they do them in Germany. They don't use black malt or using this natural extract to give color because they feel roasted malt gives too much unpleasant harshness in the beer. So Almost Clint like would listen, coffee or something would. Exactly. Okay. And Clint would listen to Mike tell these stories, and Clint makes a beautiful dark beer now, and he calls it European Vacay. And he calls it that from after Mike's stories. <laughs> about being a bear and it's awesome. It's I mean, really he, good. He makes one of the best Dunkel beers I think I've nice, ever nice had in my Dunkel life. I've had in the United Sometimes States. I wonder if coming up with the names is actually the most fun part. It's the hardest thing at this point in time. Yeah. Well, because probably every name okay, in the world is every like... Every brewery has 30 to 50 beers. Yeah. And there's 9,000 breweries. Do the arithmetic. How did you guys... In 2013, how was the name Wisconsin Brewing Company not taken? <laughs> it, actually, we are we are the fourth Wisconsin Brewing Company. Are there, you really? there had been one that some friends of mine started um, that was in the Menominee Valley in the late 80s, and they got flooded out twice. And oh. they finally sold the brands to, um, they finally had to give up. And it was so they shame. produced the original Swamp Thing then. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. You'd go in there, and they, after the first flood, they had a line on a wall, that came, and I couldn't believe it. And they, got, they had a 100-year flood twice. And oh. I mean, I just it was terrible, these poor guys. But there was also previous, I think, in the 1800s, I can't remember, but we are the fourth in the line of Wisconsin. 
brewing companies. And let's face mm -hmm. it, that's a hell of a responsibility. And look it, if MC here can you know can pan around, we say Wisconsin Brewing Company, we mean it. Yeah, we're very proud of where we're from. Oh yeah, pretty much everything in here is from. Yeah, Wisconsin. and if you look at that, or there's a, a map on the wall. Our brew house is German engineered by a company called Hutman, which has been around for 150 years. Great company. But they're now owned by GEA, which is an international company of food processing equipment, primarily, primarily dairy. They have a beautiful shop in Hudson, Wisconsin. So we have a German-designed brew house that was made in Hudson, Wisconsin. All the tanks you see out here come from Sprinkman, um, which is a Wisconsin company that's been around forever. In fact, um, it was just recently purchased by Krohn's, which is a manufacturer of our canning equipment. Krohn's is a German company that's great. Their head, United States headquarters are an hour from here. So there's a Wisconsin thing. All of our pumps are Fristam, a company, a German company has a manufacturing facility not too far from where I live in Middleton. It's a beautiful place. Is Wisconsin like the Germany of the U.S.? There is, um, <laughs> there's, there's areas of Wisconsin that are very German. Uh, you ever heard of the Holy Land? No, no. I did, I did know there's a lot of German influence. If in this you state, go to Fond du Lac Land. and go up, you know, if you go up Fond du Lac 151 and start driving up the east side of the lake from Fond du Lac till where 151 pieces off to the right to Chilton, there's an area to the right that's called the Holy Land, and there are these cities with names like Saint Anne, um, Johnstown, all these biblical names. Marytown. Right. Hmm. And what that happened was in the 1800s, um, some German villagers from Germany would come settle a certain area and love it. And write all their to all their their home villagers, so to speak. To, you got to come in the new world, and so it was almost a transfer transposition of one of a village from one locale or one country to another. Mm -hmm. And all these towns had these biblical names. They were small farming towns, and each had a big Catholic church with a huge spire. And you can see them all over the place. Amazing. Well, I okay. imagine they probably wanted to bring what they knew back home and have that here. here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does good beer come out of the oh, Holy Land? Put it this way. I always knew there was a really good beer story there, all right? So here I've got um, a couple friends of mine, a husband and wife team, who are working. Brees Malting on the Chilton is a great malting. So it's basically the, the maltings in this country, and I can explain malt if you want in a minute, um, that really supported the craft breweries, the microbreweries in the beginning. Um, the husband, Gary, is a pretty quiet guy until we get a few cocktails, and then he's, he becomes Churchillian. <laughs> and he's a wonderful guy, but he, we're talking one day, and he goes, yeah, you know, I grew up in St. Anne. That's in the Holy Land. I'm going, stop, stop. Tell me about this Holy Land. It's a fascinating concept, and I just, I just want to know more about it. And he's telling me, basically, it's, um, it's almost analogous to the Amish. These communities were very, very tight yeah, and very, very much supportive of each other. Like, um, if you need a new garage, you just let the neighbors know, and they come over on a couple Sundays, Saturday, Sundays, they knock down the old and put up a new one. And then Gary lays this beautiful story on me. He goes, and every Sunday when it was nice out, my dad, all the, all, the, all the guys in town, my dad would hang out in our backyard and drink beer and try to out-talk each other. <laughs> and he goes, and when I was eight years old, he started sending me to the bar to get a couple gallon jugs of beer. And I'm thinking of those screw-top gallon jugs with a finger hole. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going, oh, so you're marching down the street with these jugs. He goes, no, man. He goes, these are open-mouth jars. And here's this eight-year-old kid marching down the street with these open <laughs> jars of beer. And he goes... And I'm taking drinks. And he goes, not that I wanted the beer, but I didn't want to piss off my dad by spilling beer all over myself. <laughs> Beautiful. We did a lager for a while called Oh Reliable, based on that story. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. There's what, so many can, cool stories when it comes to can beer. You, I thought one that was pretty neat was the story behind Badger Club, too. Like how you got that name as from, like, one of the OG breweries. Well, basically, like there were a number of Badger Clubs. Okay. And, it's a, you know, we wanted to make a very traditional... Um, German-style lager, and basically what Badger Club is, an amber lager, but based on the Meritzen 
the Oktoberfest style, just kind of Americanized, not of intense. But if you look, you know, we were badgers, you know. Badger's a state animal, and it had a lot to do with the mining industry, mm-hmm. you know, being underground. And Wisconsin, including the 150 we have had today, has probably had close to 1,000 breweries since it became a territory. Okay, yeah. And every small town back, you know, back then had their, their brewery making their version of the American-style standard lager with cool names like Wisconsin Club and a lot of Badger Clubs. And so we are going through um, books of old beer labels looking at names, and there was a number of Badger Clubs, and we just felt it was such a great continuation of how breweries back then were trying to make beers that names represented what our state was all about. And yeah. so that's what Badger Club is. Yeah. And it's a very solid lager, um, Oktoberfest at heart, and it's really good. And that, in fact, it's important. It's the first beer we can on our line, and that's what we're going to be canning. Very nice. No oh, way. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I like that's it. That's cool. One other one that I heard about that I, I also wanted to ask, and this one, if you can speak to it, it'd be cool. There's a there's some kind of crazy process I was hearing about with a Scotch ale, where it involves huh. like some really hot stones or something like that. Oh, Death charge. Death charge. Death yeah. charge. There Death is a charge. style. Of, that sounds awesome. It is. It's a there's a style of beer in Germany called Stein beer, which means stone, and it harkens back to the days. Part of the process when we're making this wort is the boiling kettle. It has to okay. be boiled, and one way to boil in the old days was to get these boulders, and to be a boulder, it has to be ten inches in diameter. By the way. For the trivia buffs out there. Oh, really? Um, okay, yeah. Of granite. And they would put it in a basket and stick it in this fire overnight and get these boulders white hot. And then you add it to the wort to get the boil going. And we're going to boil for quite a few reasons. The well, because just because they, were, they had it in wood pot, so you couldn't put the wood pot over the fire. Right. Oh, yeah. So you'd have to find and a way so to there, boil And so there are numerous reasons we boil, and we won't get into them here, but one of the byproducts of using these stones was well, the wort is a very sugar-rich liquid. And these stones, being so hot, you get this intense caramelization of sugars when these rocks would hit the wort. And it really affected the flavor of the beer. So the year is 2000, 2001. Uh, 2001, actually, um, Tommy Porter started. And he had this little three-barrel system. And I was editing for a magazine called Brew Your Own. And someone had written an article on, on these type of beers. And I'm going, that's cool. And I got together with a great Dane, and we went out and conned Porter into um, making this beer. And so we, um, you know, Mike was part of it, and we had a fire with these boulders and a metal basket, and we got pictures of all this stuff, and we carried it in, and we had, and I was worried about, because wort can, you know, this kettle can overboil, it can be very dangerous. So I'm going, okay, we're adding these hot rocks, this could be a disaster. So Mike <laughs> and um, Pat Keller, his neighbor, who used to be the brewmaster at Great Dane Fitchburg, who's his partner in crime when they go to Germany, were the guys in charge of lowering this, these rocks into the fire, and I'm standing there with a hose, and we got a escape rouse, everyone's ready for disaster <laughs> and the rocks hit the wart and was perfect we got a beautiful 30 minute boil and then we augmented it with a steam boil and the beer was great it is absolutely we did it basically as a scotch ale we just used one strain of malt a, a strain from britain called maris otter which is quite good and mildly hopped we just really wanted to see what these rocks would do to the malt mm-hmm. you guys it was so good so of course we're gonna do it again does it make it like does it impart a different flavor on it yes. than you normally Well, what happens is, is the sugars in the wort will caramelize, actually caramelize on the stone. Yeah. And then as it cools down, they fall back off into the wort, and now mm. they become a very, very fermentable sugar. Right, and it also mm. they almost add like a, a marshmallow character, but in a good way. Right. A oh, burnt, yeah. really a burnt marshmallow kind of taste. Oh, uh, okay. The second year My we favorite. did it, we got the engineers involved and studied the rocks. Oh, right, right. So same thing, Mike <laughs> and Pat lower the rocks. Rock we, have our, we have our escape routes planned. These rocks, and I've got a picture of this. These rocks hit this wart, 
Mount Vesuvius. It exploded. <laughs> I thought I killed you and Mike. Excuse me, you and Pat. They disappeared. <laughs> and I'm spraying this stuff, and all I'm doing is spraying hot wart onto them as they start yelling at me. <laughs> Keller was covered with um, spots of wart. Mike had a burn that big in his forearm that he was so proud of. <laughs> <laughs> the rocks, these new rocks turned to sand, got into Tommy's system, took out every pump seal he had. He was ready oh. to kill me, and the beer was awful. Was it a different kind of rock? Same yeah. kind of rock? Different rock. And you decided to hop up the formula, you know, to, to, to American, and it destroyed Supercharge it. Supercharge it. So, you know, it's only funny till someone gets hurt. Yeah. Then it's hilarious. That, exactly. And so we um, <laughs> now do it out here on a much larger basis. We've got uh, what we call a Stein kettle that's 600 gallons, so we'll pump 20 barrels of wort. We'll start a brew and stop it. Pump 20 barrels outside, and, and Mike Everson is a rock master. He's been out there barbecuing these rocks, and they literally get white hot. And Mike um, is on a forklift, and we do a lot of cheesy things. I mean, basically, the first we were using granite. And the first granite we were going to use was going to be retired um, curling stones, the hardest okay. granite known to man. Hardest granite, yeah. Okay. You know what happens to the hardest granite when you barbecue it? It turns into the hardest sand known to man. Really? Yeah. Amazing. So, it just So we had to go back to Boulders, but we do have the local curling club march along with Mike holding up their curling brooms. They're the guardians of the granite. Incredible. But then, since it's called Def Charge about blowing things up, yes. we hire a pyrotechnics company and we we have blown up dragons, swans. Mike and I did models of our evil Doppelbach. Wait, gangers. is this something that people can come see? Yeah, absolutely. When does this happen? Um it's usually the first, first. or second Saturday. This way it's gonna be the second Saturday in July. Okay. We have John okay. always, always, always the Saturday after the fourth. Oh, yeah. we got to come watch. This oh man, thing. It's, I mean, it's insane. I mean, we this year we just what we blew up was nothing, but we just had a huge. We, Mike made a floating fire pit out of stainless. Okay, naturally, I mean, it's yeah, right. and it's, it's awesome. And we we'll use that as a platform. So we had all these explosions plus daytime fireworks in the background. And Mike also, if you go outside, built us a trebuchet. And the last Saturday oh, in October, right. yeah, we launched pumpkins, and it's fun. If there's something oddly satisfying about watching pumpkins arch through the air and hit the water. And we've got targets out there, and eventually we load up the fire pit with pallets, and we torch that. And it's just, you know, beer drinking's fun, and doing... People like weird stuff. Yeah. You yeah. Know, especially know. when they're Where drinking you, beer. It was especially, you know? yeah. Fire, beer, explosions. I'm curious, too, because when I saw that trebuchet, it's not small. Like, where oh. did you learn to build a he, trebuchet? This is Mike. I guess built it in his freaking driveway. You just don't Mike, ask you questions. Need, Mike, can I come help you? Get away. Can you we don't explain ask questions a, can we explain Mike. a trebuchet? It's essentially a gigantic, it's like a catapult, catapult yeah. made out of wood. It's, that's what it is. Trebuchet, a, trebuchets were much more accurate, though, than catapults. Trebuchets came after catapults. Catapults were okay. first. Catapults I mean, were kind of like, they were just kind of like, they, they, were, they were more wound with rope as, okay. that were used as a spring sort of to speak, yeah, okay, and where a catapult or where a trebuchet is actually a pendulum with weight on it that you can calculate. Oh, okay. And so Sounds when you release scientific. that, the, the amount of forces that it's throwing and the angle of the throw, you can do. And the, in the old days, they they had it dialed in, man. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they they. It's amazing. The oh, dude, I used to I used to play Age of Empires on the computer. I'd friggin' make a whole army of trebuchets and just go destroy everybody it's, else's castle. I was such a nerd. But dude, we do three-dimensional trebuchets. And yeah, we, this um, is real. It's fun. That is awesome. We actually have a video. Um, I have an old GoPro, and Mike mounted it to the camera. 
and we um we have video of what it's like to be launched in a trebuchet being a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> we put it we mounted it right in the pumpkin, and then we launched him. Incredible. Yeah, that's boom, awesome. Boom, 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 boom. More things that you can, it, like, the dealers and retailers must just love. They love all these stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's, but, but it's, it's just, you know, but again, anything, anytime, anywhere for no apparent reason at all. That's yeah. the philosophy. Yeah. And um, I don't know. We just have fun. But we're also very dedicated. It's all about the beer. And going to the back to the beer should be an adjunct of enjoyment of life. By God, we work our butts off. But we're going to go out in that beer garden and have a couple parties. We're going to have a couple parties. Yeah. You know, we're going to do it right. And it's our responsibility to entertain the masses, and we do. Hey, what do you guys think, and speaking of places that sell beer, because sometimes the places that sell beer are pretty sweet, what do you guys think is the coolest place that sells Wisconsin brewing beer that you've been to? All of them. All of them? Is there, like, the p- is there one that's, like, super stands out? Maybe it's, like, super mega old or, like... Everybody has their own unique atmosphere. Yeah. You know, and it's it's there's a lot of really creative places all over Madison, all over the all over the state. Yeah, but they're all unique. It's pro- yeah, it's they're all unique in one. their own way. Yeah, and I, you know, again, it's um, I love them all. Now, at heart, and I and Mike, you know, Mike and my wife and I, we go to a lot of supper clubs because mm-hmm. it's a traditional Wisconsin thing. Mm-hmm. That's classic. And you know, so for us, I am very much a traditional person, and we love doing that. But yet, there's a lot of great new places out there that you know are have approached um, the serving of beer in a very interesting way, paired with a lot of different foods, and that's what's great about beer: the flexibility. You're only limited how to to brew it and enjoy it by your imagination. Yeah, you know what I mean. And you know what's the best beer I've ever had? Probably the one that's in my hand right now. You know, people <laughs> ask me what our favorite beer we make is here. I hate them all. All I do is worry about them. <laughs> and I analyze them, and that's a mistake because beer was not. You probably can't drink it without thinking about it. Oh, yeah, it. and it's wrong because beer wasn't brewed to be analyzed. It was brewed to be enjoyed, and so I'm my own worst enemy. He is his own worst enemy. And, I mean, Dang. I will sit in here and one day have the glass of beer and say, this is good. The next day I want to take that same beer out of that glass and whip it against the wall because I'm not happy with it. It just... You know, I'm neurotic paranoid. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I'll let you know that. There's nothing yeah. wrong. He's just his own worst enemy. <laughs> well, it's like even when you cook something, it's always better when somebody else cooks it, I feel. Oh, Except your burritos, Jim. You love your burritos. I do love my burritos. <laughs> that sounds good. It's a good burrito. I've been ta- making the same burrito for seven years, and I just really like it. Hey, you're a burrito master. Anyway, enough. This is a beer podcast. But we're, we're talking about... Burritos and beer are good together. Selling beer, cool places that sell beer, and, and you brought up the three-tier system. And this was some, something that I only became... This is something I didn't, didn't know until just even a couple of weeks ago, chatting with some guys, but it's an interesting system. Like, I mean, you guys sell beer here, but like, it's almost like if you make the beer, you can't distribute the beer, and if you distribute the beer, you can't sell the beer. Like, How, how does that work? There is a lot of... Interesting laws. Now, like Tommy started out self-distributing. And up to, I think you can self-distribute in this um, state up to 10,000 barrels. Distributing is a lot of work, man. You've never gone into an account that thought of the beer delivery guy. No. And, and half barrels are 161 pounds each. And you will try, obviously, you want to try, I've delivered enough beer to realize, man, it's, um, you get two kegs on a cart going down an old rickety set of stairs and something goes wrong. It's loud. <laughs> things are flying so it's um it's a labor intensive um, um thing you know tom self-distributed for many years he can't anymore yeah you know it right. just you literally beat yourself up but it also it's a kind of a big hangover from prohibition and let's face it during prohibition were people going to stop drinking nah one of the the most 
the biggest result from prohibition was it took a lot of Bush League criminals and made organized crime a power in this country because there was this demand for huge amounts of this product that was very profitable and wasn't legal to sell, but people, that actually made it more attractive. So right. who's in charge of the industry then? Criminals. And so the basis of the three-tier system became prohibition, where after prohibition, you had these organ, organized crime basically in charge of the alcohol and it was very lucrative, so they're going to hold on to it. And it became a three-tier system also to protect smaller companies because you get the very, very large companies that could buy up accounts and buy all these bars and that, and they could only sell their beer. It was called a Tide House. Oh, and oh so, okay. Almost so, kind of like Monopoly, like having a Monopoly. It was, exactly. And so one of the reasons for a distributor, for producer, wholesaler, retailer, was to try to cut the brewers out of the business of selling beer so the large ones couldn't just stomp on the small ones. Oh, okay. And so, and distribution, our industry is all about distribu- distribution. You know, yeah. it's, so, it's so hard. And distribution, ironically, is... Lately, has gone the way of the breweries did um, when we were down to 61 breweries. They've consolidated. It's uh, like you, um, Wisconsin distributing um, River City. Yep. Yeah, I was a part a of the... River yeah, City gang? I was a River City guy because I started in beer almost five years ago with River City. And mm-hmm. I was in the west side of Madison. And then consolidation happened. And now Wisconsin distributors. Right. But yeah. And so here you have the port. Your distributors these days where it's getting difficult is you have a limited number of distributors. And all of a sudden... You've got all these breweries coming up. They all are in your face that you're selling our beer and we expect this. And these guys are just being indenuated. Yeah. There's so many brands and limited shelf space and what's new and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. you know, right now their challenge is to try to pick through the chaff and keep, you know, because basically. And it evolves. What, yeah. And one it's of the problems evolving. with um, this what's new is a new beer will come to the market and it's hotter than a $7 pistol for a month. And then people move on to something else. And then else. everybody forgets about it. Yeah. But you bought all this beer and let's get back to beer being fragile. It'll sit on a shelf beyond its shelf life, and someone might finally pick it up, and it's bad. And first impressions are the, you know, the ones you're going to remember, and people oh, tend to stress negatives more and positive. So ironically, you, know, you can be a victim of the success of the industry with all the new stuff by brands. You've got to produce. It's a volume business. You've got to produce enough to justify the business, but it might not be one that sells a lot. And it was hot for a while, and now it's not. And all of a sudden, it's getting old, and you guys have to have a lot of money tied up in inventory that has to be destroyed. Yeah. So, again, it's just the, the challenges of our industry right now. And, and I've noticed, like, personally drinking, I'm all about what's new, what's hot. And then, like, a week ago, I sat down, I'm like, I just need a beer. You know what I mean? A good uh, just a good, hearty, like, Badger Club. I'm just drinking all these new, innovative stuff. And then you get to that point where it's like, you just need to take a step back and know like where beer started, yeah. And drink that solid Badger Club, that amber, that solid lager. It's just like yeah, let's yeah. get to that point. Yeah. Again, it's a term that a lot of people kind of kind of say. Well, it means it's a boring beer. I know it doesn't. That's drinkability. Yeah. yeah. And it's about balance. What drinkability means is um okay, we pop this Badger Club or this um warp speed, and we pour a glass and we take a sip and whoa, whoa don't you put me down. You want another drink? It should be friendly. It should have a nice personality and soul yeah. but as it finishes it's a lingering finish that makes you go that was good yeah, yeah. i want another it, it and some always... beers can do that initially but if they're way whacked out of balance of bittering or too much intense specially malt or whatever funky ingredient after time builds up unpleasantly in the palate it is such a pain when you go to a party or whatever and you open up the cooler and you got all these weird things that are super off the wall 
And I'm thinking to myself, well, now what I have to do is I crack it open. Whoever got the beer is going to come over and be asking me what I think about it and how it hits my palate and all this other stuff. And I'm like, all I want to do is grab a beer and hang out. I don't want to. I didn't come over here to be Napoleon Dynamite. This one tastes like the beer got into the onion patch. You know, like <laughs> good way to put it, by the way. Seriously, yeah. So you guys have also gotten into one one thing. I wanted to like almost divert for a second is some of these seltzers, right? Is that like a hard seltzer? Actually, What's the, that's that like the hot new thing. Isn't what's we'll dis- new? We'll discuss um, right. seltzers in a second. What we're making is a rattler, and it's, it's kind so of a modern version of a rattler. What what rattlers are is um, <laughs> let's just all stare at Mike. <laughs> what is what what is that magical sound? Ah, uh, talking about rattler. <laughs> is that the canning alarm? Yeah, Does that see, mean you got to get go see, canning. What a rattler was is um, this is something <laughs> that, that evolved in Germany, I believe, post World War II. Oh, all thank right, you, sir. And the story behind it was. There was a guy who had a guest house on a very popular biking trail. And there was going to be this huge biking event. And they were going to be stopping at his place. So it's um, a score for him, okay? Mm-hmm. He screwed up. He didn't order enough beer. Yeah. So all of a sudden, he's besieged with all these thirst-crazed cyclists. And they're beer, beer, beer. You don't he's piss running out. Oh, what is he going to do? And as legend goes, he had a bunch of lemon soda that was a cellar dog he couldn't get rid of. He started mixing it 50-50 with the beer, and everyone dug it. Oh, so it's, it's like... It's half soda, half beer. Oh. And Rattler means cyclist. It's a lower ABV, lower ABV, very refreshing drink that when you're outside sweating and riding bikes or running around might be better than a big Doppelbach. Yeah. Right. All right. So that became Rattler. And ours is um, a modernized version is that we're making it with a gluten-free beer and a natural fruit soda. Oh, cool. But seltzer is a... Should we crack it? Is it cold enough? Um... So there's a beer element to a red, like yeah, seltzer, like versus a seltzer. Yeah. Well, what? Okay. <laughs> it's 10 a.m. It's in 10 Wisconsin. We're already we late. Crack one, here's right? what here's what seltzers are, and I'm technically they're a beer, it. but <laughs> the law has changed. And when you make a seltzer, to be a beer, you got to have some malted barley in it. Okay. Yeah. You make a base product that is 99% sugar and maybe 1% malt extract, hardly any. Okay. It also has to have hops in it. But no, you don't want a hop character in terms of bittering or flavor in a seltzer. Hmm. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to a hop company, and they have um, they make hop extracts where all the all the essentials, things that brewers are concerned with in the hops are extracted and put into a, a like a really thick syrup form for those who want to use that type of extract. And then you have all this vegetable chaff that they used to throw away. Now they pelletize it and sell it as spent hops. You add it to the boil. So you're fulfilling a part of the law where it's got to be hopped, even though it's not. Oh, it's just, it's nothing. Right. And then you're using um, a champagne or something, a yeast that's very alcohol tolerant, and making a beer that tastes like, oh, anywhere from bad fingernail polish to um, very cheap Chardonnay at about a 15, (laughs) 16% ABV. What do you do? If you have the technology, you run it through membrane filtration. If not, you circulate it through carbon filter and take all the color and flavor out of it and have what's beer vodka, which is basically a clear, flavorless liquid of about 15% ABV. Yeah. Then you dilute it with um, carbonated water and the, the flavor goodness, and you have seltzer. And it's a lot Whoa. lower in carbohydrates than that and this and that, you know, sugars and all this stuff. It's, you know, whatever trips your trigger, but White Claw, which didn't exist three years ago, outsold Budweiser in July of this year. It, it is a it's phenomenal. incredible. It is everywhere. And it's a phenomena. Yeah, and it's, it's not what I drink, um, but a lot of people do. And it's just like a lot of this um, this day and age is, you know, 
drink without consequences, meaning no sugar. No, it's just yeah, basically it's, it's all. It's a healthy yeah. generation coming yeah. out. Well, you got commercials now where it's like people are doing CrossFit, and the next minute they go and they drink a beer, and it's like, that. wait, I'm buying beer because I do CrossFit? Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> and that's, you know, again, whatever, whatever your lifestyle is, but it's strange. I mean, for me, it's very strange. Yeah. Um, but they become incredibly popular. Yeah. And it's just, again, now the market's going to get very crowded. So Rattler is not a seltzer. It's a version of a traditional product, but we've done it gluten-free and in such a way with the beer so we can use natural fruit juice and some sugar and still be in a you know, low, about 110, 120 calorie range. Yeah. And I got to tell you, this day and age when I go out and sell these type of things, you have customers coming up. I don't know if I'm selling beer or seltzer or if I'm discussing organic chemistry. I mean, <laughs> well, what about what sugars and what sugar? And like, I can't stop. You want to drink or not? You know, <laughs> that's a, that's a question. Let's get down to brass tacks. This is getting too complicated. Funny, funny story. Klaus was here a couple of years ago because he loves to hunt. Yeah, and so we took him deer hunting up to Carl's place from in Germany, right? Yeah. yeah so he so come, he's right. here to hunt, and we're sitting around the campfire, and that's about the time that we were coming out with the Rattlers. And so we're coming out with the Rattlers, and we're sitting around the fire, and we're just kind of talking and drinking some beers. And we're talking about this Rattler that we're going to do, which is a Stiegel was kind of the bullseye. Stiegel's the quintessential German grapefruit Rattler. Red red grapefruit. Stiegel Mm. was was the essential Rattler that we were kind of the target was, the bullseye. And we're sitting around the fire, and Klaus goes, I invented it. Wait, what? I invented Stiegel Rattler. Yeah. He had been the, the genesis behind this product that became... You guys didn't even realize prior to that? No, no. And Mike also has the greatest video of Klaus's first experience with a light beer. Holy crap. Wait, I just tried it. this stuff. It's very pleasant, isn't it? It's very it good. Is. It's low ABV. Only a, about the three. grapefruit is a great breakfast beer. Great breakfast. I agree. Oh, goodness. Which is totally... A, it's not even 10 a.m. now. And uh, well, I'm enjoying a, a good breakfast beer. Oh, it's not only a good breakfast like we beer, said, Jim. I, this, is, this is my breakfast this morning. Me too. Perfect. It it's it is weirdly like drinking a beer, but like there's some beeriness to it, but it's yeah. also fruit soda. It's only about three and a half ABV. Yeah, so it's gentle. It's it really is. it's very nice. Again, for me, very nice sunny day afternoon drink. Yeah, oh, and man. it because um, you're not going to get all to... ripped up, and it's pleasant as hell. I drink it, and I don't immediately have to like uncomfortably burp. You know what I mean? Which is nice. I discovered it <laughs> as a breakfast beer. We went to EAA a few months ago, and I took some Rattler along. I take some beer along just so. Because we'll run into people in the camp, and they'll go, you know, who are you guys? What are you doing? And here, try one of these, try one of these. Well, we were sitting around the fire in the morning, getting the fire going, getting ready to cook breakfast, and Pat said, I'm kind of thirsty. I said, well, let's have a Rattler. Perfect. I can't, I can't, I haven't, I haven't had one of these before. I can't believe how good this is. You're yeah. a big White Claw fan, Mark. What do you think? That's this is I prefer flavor. this over it. This is amazing. I, yeah, I prefer this much. Mark, I'm sorry. No, I never, I, well, I never I was agree. on the White Claw bandwagon. Anyway, so many of the, well, you know why I like them. So many of the, the flavor same. drinks are, are they taste like laboratories. You know, it's yeah, artificial. they do. Yeah, no, this tastes like uh, refreshing grapefruit juice. You guys is. are uh, behind us. They're firing up the can light. Mike, do you got to get going oh, to that? You got to oversee I that. Do. All right, that's that's I'm fair. Sure. And plus, this is um, a big moment. This is a huge moment. Well, you guys got something in our history. We'll we'll check it out. You have to understand something. This is how willing we are always to open our kimono, so to speak. This is a startup. You know what startups are? Fraught with minefields and disasters. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what you might see. Hey. But you're more than willing to come hang out and try a couple right off the line. Oh, can't wait. Well, thank you guys so much for joining oh, us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Oh, no, it's, it's been amazing. My mind's blown. 
We got to go watch some beer go into cans for the first time ever. This this is like this is huge. So everybody, check and out Wisconsin Brewing. Thanks for what you guys do with your company. It's oh. an awesome organization. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Appreciate if you it. are ever in South Central Wisconsin, come to Verona. Come to the Wisconsin Brewing Company. There's a sweet pond out here. Apparently, you can go kayaking in it or whatever you want. That's what they were telling us. There's, there's an some, awesome. Uh, there's patio, a couple guys who caught eleven inch bluegills out of that thing. I was going to ask about your uh, ordinances fishing. here as far as discharging firearms because there were a lot of geese on that pond earlier. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, t- I tell you what, we had. Silencer. We won't tell years ago when we shot the pumpkin. There were a bunch. Uh, first time we shot the trebuchet, there was a bunch in the target area, and well, fine. They're in a way to shoot the thing. And it landed close to them, and they realized immediately they didn't want to be there. So they swam out of range and stayed. But they figured it out after the first shot that, I don't know what those creatures are doing, but we want no part of it. But if we're here, we're okay. Educating geese. was well, kind of disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. Well, thanks again, you guys. Thanks, let's go, guys. Let's All go right. watch this All process right. unfold. All right. Come on a better day. That's awesome. All right, guys. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.